It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot, rebound, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Tuesday? Hope you're off to a great start. We're going to make it better. That's what we do on this program, and we want you to be involved. You've got the text number 650-650-969-60. can hit us up at any point during the course of the show today. I'm Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd, co-piloting all week long. How are you today, sir? I am, I'm doing fantastic, Scotty. Honestly, we've had our first, like, colder weather in Vancouver in a long, long time. I'm wearing a hoodie doing the show. My windows are closed. I feel amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah, I've been making a lot of calls to the interior of BC to relatives I have in Alberta as well, and I am wishing them the same type of weather that hit the West Coast yesterday, trying to push it across so that we can get some relief from these wildfires. Apparently, they got some rain in the interior last night. A lot of accidents right now. Not surprising. There are a lot of natural, I'm not going to call them disasters, but natural obstacles and hurdles that have closed a lot of highways out there. So be safe yep. out there. If you don't have to travel, I think this is something that it's incumbent on all of us in our two provinces right now to push out there. If you don't have to travel, perhaps stay home. And here's why. There are a lot of places that are evacuating right now, Jamie. And because of that, neighboring communities need the space. So if people are coming in for a vacation, and look, we all want to go on vacation. I just got back from visiting my family as well. People are going on vacation. They take up hotel rooms or spaces at Airbnbs that might be needed for people evacuating communities. So just make sure you take a look at where you're going. If there are areas that are in risk that are neighboring, you might want to hang back. Yeah, and at the very least, maybe just reconsider exactly where you're going, as you're saying. And, and, you know, if you are someone here on the Lower Mainland, for instance, you know, maybe look at, you know, Vancouver Island or or the Gulf Islands or the Sunshine Coast or something a little closer to home that's not in the direct line of risk from these fires that that doesn't have these same issues you're talking about. Now, we're not a news program. We are a sports program. So we'll focus on that for the majority of the show. Good get by producer Raja Shergirl today. Michael Pekka is going to join us in the third hour of the program today. Recently accepted a job with the Rochester Americans, that is Buffalo's minor league affiliate. Pekka, of course, played in Buffalo. He's drafted by the Vancouver Canucks, featured on six NHL teams during the course of his career. So it'll be an interesting discussion about why this was the right opportunity for him right now. Jamie, this is a guy who'd been coaching with the Buffalo Junior Sabres. That's an outfit that is a part of... Junior A Hockey in the Ontario Hockey League. It's the one American team that plays in that league. He'd been there for uh, the better part of the past decade. And then last year, he went to Washington to work with the Capitals and apparently went there not expecting to get paid, just wanted to learn a little bit more. They said, no, no, we can give you a paying gig. And he worked as a development coach there. But now he's back with the Sabres. I'm interested to know why he thinks this is the right time to go back to a place that he left under acrimonious circumstances. Well, and as you said, you know, we, I think of Pekka certainly as a Buffalo Sabre first and foremost. I think probably most people do, but it's not as if he played his entire career there, right? He bounced around a fair bit. You know, he was on that Oilers team uh, that went to the Stanley Cup final. So yeah, I, I agree. And I really want to get into him, get into it with him about, you know, the relationship that city has with that team, especially when things are at their best, right? Which obviously they are not right now. And that's another interesting wrinkle about, okay, why this organization right now, given everything else that's surrounding it? It'll be interesting to see what he 
has heard from the organization why he thinks it's the best opportunity, and though he's a step removed from the NHL, obviously you would think he has NHL aspirations as far as coaching goes somewhere down the line. Now, the head coach of the Buffalo Sabres, of course, is not Michael Pekka. It is Don Granato. They gave him the gig after having the interim opportunity this season, conducted an extensive coaching search, and settled on the guy who led them to a respectable finish. I think we can agree on that, can't we? It was respectable for the Buffalo Sabres yep. the way they, they were at the end of the season? Yeah, I think that's a fair. He, he made them you know, not a laughingstock, not a team that other teams rolled in and said, oh, we're just going to pace these guys night in, night out. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy for Don Granato. We can see what the roster looks like. We know that this is the latest rebuild in Buffalo. Don Granato was on the Cam and Strick podcast. Now, Andy Strickland was on the morning show in Calgary today. Really good interview there. And Don Granato, that episode dropped today on the Cam and Strick podcast. And it's an extensive interview with the Sabres head coach. And he talked about, for a guy who's gone through a lot of coaching and a lot of different levels, whether or not he would ever get the opportunity, Jamie. And so he talked about the importance of what he was able to get last season when he was given the interim job. Have a listen. The hardest thing for me, Andy, over the last 10 years was even getting interviews. Mm. Uh, but, you know, so having had the opportunity to do that, um, uh, coach those games, it was almost an automatic that I would at least get interviewed for other head coaching jobs in the future. For sure. And and that was everything in the world. Because I, we talked about, if you nobody gives you an opportunity, it doesn't matter how good you are. Somebody has to give you an opportunity. And I felt for years, in the last few years, I couldn't even get an interview. Because people said, well, you don't have any experience. And so at least now I knew 100% I would get interviewed. And and I've always done fine in interviews. I have no problem with it because I've had so much experience doing it as far as coaching. I mean, um, in, in crisis management, running practices, developing players, implementing systems, you know, all the things that you that go into what we do as head coaches, uh, that's where my experience has lied. Um, but if you don't get to talk about it uh, in, in an interview, you're not going to get hired. That was uh, That, I thought, was the most frustrating thing. We're talking about a guy with a big family name here, Jamie. The Granato family is royalty in USA hockey circles, and yet Don Granato, he couldn't get an opportunity to interview for a head coaching position. I think a lot of our listeners out there can relate. You're breaking into an industry. You're breaking into your job market. And what do you hear from employers all the time? Well, you know, you just don't have experience. Yeah, I know, but if I don't get that chance yeah. to get experience, yeah. how am I supposed to come back to you and tell you I have experience? Well, and it's so frustrating because – I, everyone had to be a first-time head coach once, right? You, you know, nobody – it's impossible to have experience before you get the job for the first time. You can look at the most decorated NHL coaches. They were rookie coaches at some time. So, yeah, I think a lot of people can absolutely relate to what Don Granato is saying there. I know I can, and you always get the sense from employers it's it's the safer thing to do is to hire someone who already has that experience, right? What did, it's like, yeah. well, we just have a little bit of extra confidence that they can already do the job, but – yeah, it can be a very frustrating position to be in. What did we hear from Ron Francis and the Seattle Kraken when they were doing their coaching shirts? Well, we're going to have to go with somebody who has NHL experience. And yep. you understand the logic there. However, it cuts a whole segment of the population out. And which organizations are willing to listen to somebody who hasn't had an opportunity? But Don Granato got me thinking about this because he was dealt a tough hand and he made the best of it last year. Buffalo was a tire fire. We all know it. There were higher expectations than there have been for quite some time, and it all fell apart rather quickly. And he took over, and as I said, he made them respectable. But he's got a tough racket again this year. 
Jamie, I want to pose this question to you. I want to pose this question to our listeners and get into a discussion about it. Which NHL head coach has the toughest job this coming season? That question is open to a lot of interpretation because toughest is very subjective and it means different things to different people. So 960-960 or 650-650. Which NHL head coach has the toughest job next season? What is your answer, Jamie? So I like this question because, yeah, as you say, there's a lot of different ways you can go with it. There's a lot of different interpretations you can make of the question. I think kind of the knee-jerk reaction is to go the hot seat route, right? Like who's on the hot seat if their team doesn't have a good start right out of the gate or if they fall short in the playoffs, who's most likely to get fired? And we can get into those guys, and I agree. A lot of them do have tough jobs. But I'm going to start actually – at the other end of things, at the bottom of the standings. And I'm going to nominate Don Granado in Buffalo and a first-time coach, uh, NHL head coach, Andre Torigny in Arizona. I know there's like zero expectations of success in the standings there, but I still think both of those places qualify as really difficult jobs. Getting through an NHL season with that kind of roster and maintaining any degree of positivity around the team, any sense of forward momentum that we're building to something getting through the season without becoming a laughing stock in the league when you have that kind of roster and this is of course assuming that the Sabres do go out and trade Jack Eichel and he's not playing for them which I think is a very safe assumption that's still a really tough job and I know it's easy to say yeah but nobody's gonna care if they lose a whole bunch of games that's true but I think from the head coach's perspective it's still a really difficult task at hand to say, okay, we know we're not going to be good. How do I still make this a productive, positive experience for the players and for the team going forward? So we can get into some of the other guys who, you know, do have the pressure of expectations. But I look at the job in Arizona. I look at the job in Buffalo. And I say, yeah, those are still really, really difficult jobs ahead of those coaches. Yeah, I look at it from a different angle. And those two wouldn't qualify for me simply because of the reason you laid out first real year on the job no expectation for their roster and there has to be a pressure point to qualify toughest job of the season to me and the pressure point you outlined is well maintaining positivity there's a way to do that and yeah it's not easy but that doesn't ratchet it up to toughest job for me in fact if you want to talk about a team that most on the outside don't have expectation for and it's going to be a tough job this season I'd put Dallas Aikens ahead of those two because yep. he's going into year three on that job and now you're into the make or break they changed all the assistants down in Anaheim he's got a tough gig there it's not supposed to be a great division but it's make or break time or so you would think, for the Anaheim Ducks. But I still wouldn't put him at the top of my list. And I came to, there are four guys on my list that I was debating between. And I'm going to tell you who's number one. It's Sheldon Keefe. It's Sheldon Keefe. It's Sheldon Keefe yeah. because of the market. It's Sheldon Keefe because of the talent. It's Sheldon Keefe because of the history and 17 years of not making it past the first round. The regular season... It doesn't even really matter in Toronto next year. You better damn well make the playoffs, and you're going to do it in a tougher division than you did this year. And even then, Jamie, you better get past the first round. You might need to get past the first couple to satisfy fans in that market. Sheldon Keefe is at the top of my list right now. He wasn't the only name that I kicked around, but he's up there. 
It's a good answer, and it's a good answer because of how long that core has been together in Toronto, the mounting frustration from the fan base, which really started to boil over after that loss to Montreal in the playoffs, and and everything you said about the market and the pressure, the intensity, the focus that is constantly on you. It's a good answer, and I like your point also about, you know, it's easy to sit here and say, okay, well, they have to win around in the playoffs. But what happens then, let's say they do win their first-round series in the playoffs. Let's assume they make it in a tough division. You know, they don't have any injury problems or anything like that. They make it to the playoffs and they win their first round. There's going to be a temptation to say, okay, he's bought himself another season. But we all know if things go sideways again in the second round, like they blow another 3-1 lead, like they go up 2-0 and lose, like they choke in a game seven, anything like that, a lot of these same conversations are going to come up. And that first round victory all of a sudden is going to be forgotten very, very quickly. So you're right. There are a lot of pitfalls facing Sheldon Keith this year. He's a great candidate for most difficult job for an NHL head coach. Unsigned text comes in. I would say Sutter in Calgary says this texture today. Just lost their captain and best defenseman. There's a lot of noise around their forward group having to run it back with them again. They haven't improved a lot this offseason, and they should be in for a playoff spot in a fairly weak Pacific division. Missing cannot be an option for them, or they could be looking at a rebuild. Do you get the sense that target one would be at the general manager level or the head coaching level in Calgary if it were not to be successful next year? It's got to be Brad Tree Living, right? Just when you look at how many coaching hires he's been able to make, and I know there's extenuating circumstances behind some of those, but just usually a GM doesn't get to hire that many coaches over this period of time, right? So, And given Daryl Sutter's cachet still as an NHL head coach, it would seem like if they have to make a decision, they're going to choose to go in the Daryl Sutter direction and keep him and move on to the general manager position. Now, I think the other possibility there is that their fates are tied together, right? And if one goes, both goes. I think that's a possibility as well. But if you're choosing between one, yeah, it's going to be Brad Tree Living first. Sheldon Keefe and Pete DeBoer, I think, have the toughest gig, says Chef Swagger from Hell's Kitchen. They need to get over the hump after their team's being cup favorites year after year after year. Vegas is such an interesting market because they've had such a high level of success, yet they haven't had the ultimate success. Pete DeBoer, what would qualify as disappointment? I mean, they have to be a playoff team. They're the favorite in their division. It's a relatively weak division when you compare to the other three in the National Hockey League, multiple rounds would be expected. I don't get the sense Pete DeBoer is on the hot seat in Vegas, but I I concede this point. Everybody seems to be on the hot seat in Vegas year after year after year. (laughs) You know, Robin Leonard was recently on that Cam and Strick podcast as well, and he said, look, you talk to Kelly McCrimmon and you talk to everybody in the organization, if you're not helping them win, then – you could be on your way out, and they're very clear about that. And Pete DeBoer, that's an interesting situation because, as you mentioned, with the weakness of the division, I think the expectation has to be probably win multiple playoff rounds, right? Like one playoff win and then an accident in the second round, that qualifies as a major disappointment. And when those are your expectations, yeah, you inherently have a very difficult job because it's really, really hard to win multiple rounds in the playoffs, right? Only four teams do it every year. It's extremely difficult if that's what your baseline for success is. But I think Vegas has put themselves in that position where the only thing that really qualifies as a successful season is at least making it to the conference finals. Again, especially considering, I think, the talent gap between them and the rest of the division. I wanted to get this one in because I think it's interesting and it's something I kicked around. And again, it might not fit 
with the hot seat definition of this, but just like most challenging jobs. What about Dominique Ducharme? And I say this only because, you know, he was hired kind of by default when they let Claude Julien go. It was it would have been really difficult to bring in another candidate at that point. He was the interim head coach, obviously. Then they make the run to the Stanley Cup final, and it's, okay, you're going to be our head coach. We, we have to hire you right now. But what that's also done has raised expectations very, very high for that team. They're not going to have Shea Weber, right? They, they will have Carey Price, but he's dealing with an injury. How many more miles are left on him? And all of a sudden, you've got a team with really high expectations that wasn't all that great in the regular season. And if you're just looking for a team that could kind of fall flat this year, I would look at Montreal. And to me, that makes Dominique Ducharme's job really difficult. It is a difficult job given what they did last year, but because he got a three-year deal, I feel like it's the second of those three years where the pressure point kicks in. I'm not sure he would be on the hot seat. And again, part of my parameters are that you've got to have some pressure applied in that sense. So I understand your point about how it could be tough. And Montreal goes back into a tough division as well. Same one as Toronto. We talked about that. But there are some built-in excuses. Is Carey Price going to be ready to go? What level of health is he at? You mentioned the loss of Shea Weber. Corey Perry's not on that roster anymore. We know how important he was to some of their success last season. They're going to be expected to be a playoff team, but they'd have to be an abject disaster for Ducharme to be in trouble. Yes, they would. Yeah, you're right. Even he, He has probably even one year here to miss the playoffs, given, as you say, you know, the Shea Weber situation, Carey Price, all of that, and he could survive that. I want to tie in another coaching quote and keep those texts coming in. We're going to run with this theme throughout the course of the show, I should say, as I misspeak on coach and course, but we'll tie your texts in throughout the course of the show. I want to get another coach quote in because I think it's related in a different way. Nick Nurse yesterday signed on to extend his time with Team Canada through 2024 and the next Olympic cycle. And he was on with Tim and Friends. He also appeared on the afternoon show, The People Show, in Vancouver as well. And one of the things Nick Nurse was asked about was what happened to Team Canada in Victoria? You got an NBA-laden roster, should have had a better result, should have qualified for the Olympics, bowed out in the semifinals to the Czech Republic. Here's what Nick Nurse had to say when asked that question. Really good lesson that happened right in front of us, which is the Czech Republic. I give them full credit, and they very much deserve to go to the Olympics. Well, why? Well, that group's been together for a long time. That group finished uh, sixth in the world, ahead of the U.S., by the way, Mm -hmm. and brought 10 of those 12 players to Victoria, the same guys. You look around at France. Same guys, Australia, I mean, Spain. I mean, some of the, I coached in the 2012 Olympics, and there was the same guys from Spain and Australia that I coached against then, yeah. nine years later. Yeah. Now, we thought that was the first thing we needed to do. We right. needed to get the guys to commit to at least this three-year cycle, right? And, and Which is difficult to do because you got to have everybody figure out their contract situation yeah. to get them signed in the NBA through their three-year cycle. I agree with part of that answer. Familiarity certainly would help our national team, and it helped the teams that Nick Nurse talked about. At the same time, we are deep enough now NBA talent-wise that if we get a requisite amount of NBAers, and especially a couple of guys like SGA and Jamal Murray to be injury-free and show up for our national team, even if they don't have a ton of experience together, this roster should be talented enough to win. 
Yeah, it's you don't want to put it all on those two players, but I also think you can't really understate how important those two players are, right? As as lead kind of ball dominant guards who can go get you a bucket, who can initiate the offense. That's a such a big part of of having success at these international tournaments, and it sounds like kind of a cop out, right? Like, ah, well, we didn't have those guys. What are you going to do? That team still could have won, and they yep. still could have found a way to win. But you're right. If you're talking about a fully healthy roster. It shouldn't matter, okay, how many of the games have these guys played together, right? It matters a little bit. Ideally, you'd love to have these three-year commitments from everyone involved, and they get a chance to build this chemistry and and learn the FIBA game together and all of that. Yeah, that's the ideal, but you're right. If you can just get the top 12 players, or even, let's say, you know, 12 of the 15 best players Canada has to offer, including guys like SGA and Jamal Murray, you should have enough talent. that that The building three years before that, it shouldn't matter all that much. Yeah, and I'm glad that a guy like Andrew Wiggins leaves with some good feels about the way he played at times during this tournament and come back and play for Canada again in this cycle. And R.J. Barrett had some very big moments scoring-wise as well. That bodes well for the future. Those players we mentioned in Shea Gilgis-Alexander and, and Jamal Murray, man, they are essential as well. Yeah. Nick Nurse, here's why I wanted to bring this in, and it somewhat ties into John Granato because Nick Nurse was overlooked for a really long time. I don't know what the future holds for Don Granato, but obviously when Nick Nurse got his opportunity, he made the most of it. Sure helps when your GM goes out and trades for Kawhi Leonard, but I digress. He went from a virtual unknown, Jamie, to a top-tier NBA coach seemingly overnight winning Coach of the Year award. We want you to lead Canada basketball. I want to get our listeners in on this conversation. Who are some of the other zero-to-hero success stories across sports? Sometimes you find them in coaching, a guy like Nick Nurse. A lot of times you find them in players as well. So if you want to offer us some coaches, if you want to offer us some players, people who just weren't thought of, were overlooked until later in their career, or took a while to finally find their wings, the late bloomers of sorts, who's on your list, Jamie? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, if we're talking about players, if just anytime I hear kind of overnight sensation, right, my mind is going to go to Jeremy Lin. And I know it was short-lived, but it does fit a little bit, right? He bounced around from different NBA camps, never really got a shot, finally gets to start for the Knicks, and there's this phenomenal stretch of games where he basically takes over New York sports. And, you know, he carved out a nice NBA career for himself after that. Was never a star-level player, really, but was able to stick around and be an effective NBA player for a long time. I was trying to think about it in the coaching ranks and it doesn't it doesn't fit with what you're saying about being a late bloomer, but just in terms of going from getting the opportunity to all of a sudden being considered elite or near elite at least, the guy who sprung to mind for me was Sean McVay in LA. Now it's different and I understand it's different because the storyline with Sean McVay when he was hired there was how young he was, right? It's like, oh my goodness, they're giving this guy, he's only 30 years old, this is incredible, he's getting this opportunity. I think there was a lot of excitement, but it's still impressive how quickly he went from, you know, rookie NFL head coach to being in the discussion for top five NFL coaches, top three NFL coaches. Didn't get the championship, took his team to the Super Bowl, didn't get the ring, but I still think just that rapid ascension, again, it's different than being a late bloomer, but to go from, Rookie NFL head coach to, hey, this guy might be one of the best coaches in the league that quickly. Sean McVay is a name that jumped to mind for me. Now, wouldn't you put Mike Tomlin there before him? Because Tomlin took over in Pittsburgh, had instant success as well, and and he's one of three coaches in Steelers franchise history, which is insane. Completely, (laughs) 
<laughs> every time I hear that stat, it just blows my mind. And Mike Tomlin still hasn't had a losing season, right? I mean, they managed to they get it together every year and and managed to finish with at least a, a 500 record. It, yeah, you're, you're right. He's a good nomination too. Mike Sullivan might be the guy in hockey, but he was a second chance because he did have a crack in his mid-30s as head coach of the Boston Bruins, and that's often the case in hockey. Like, you'll see a guy like Dan Bilesma seemingly come from nowhere, win a Stanley Cup, but wasn't really able to maintain the success. Nick Nurse, we'll see where it goes from here. Bilesma might have been that guy with the Pittsburgh Penguins a few years ago. You said that you meant you think of Jeremy Lin as overnight sensation. I'll tell you the guy I always think of that fits this category for me, and I've got a bunch more on the list that I want to get into later on the show, Kurt Warner. Yeah. Kurt Warner went from bagging groceries and playing arena <laughs> football and being a, I thought he was a running back with the Seattle Seahawks. No, no, this is Kurt with a K to the league MVP and leading the Rams to a Super Bowl. Yeah, and eventually Hall of Fame. And yeah, yeah it, you're right. That's a really good example because it was the sustained success as well. And I mean, I guess it's a little different because of how his career developed early. I mean, you could throw Tom Brady in this discussion as well, right? Sixth round pick, backing up, and then takes over and never looks back. But he didn't become a super he, – he was a winner, but he wasn't looked at as one of the best quarterbacks in the league for quite a while after that. Whereas, as you say, Kurt Warner, league MVP right away. Keep those texts coming in, 650-650-960-960. We will build them into our programming here today. Late bloomers overlooks coaches or players who turned into something special a little bit later on, and people went, how could we have missed this along the way? We also asked you which coach has the toughest job in the NHL this coming season. I didn't tell you who was on my short list, but we're going to talk about one of them next as we head to the Windy City. That's next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Not surprised by this in the slightest. Jamie, the listeners are bringing it. We asked a couple of open-ended questions. Which NHL coach has the toughest job this coming season? And give us an example of somebody who was overlooked, a late bloomer, somebody who was either a coach. We used Nick Nurse as the example in the NBA. He didn't get his coaching gig till he was 50-plus, and then all of a sudden he wins an NBA championship, and he's regarded as one of the great coaches in the game. But it didn't look like he'd ever get that opportunity. Who fits on that list? And, man, we've got some great submissions coming yeah. in here. Yeah, we've got a lot of good ones. And we opened it up to players as well on that late bloomer one. And this one came in uh, to the Vancouver inbox, 650-650, which I think is a perfect example. Jose Bautista, when he got to the Jays. And, and that fits really, really well because he had just never, never clicked in his Major League Baseball career. And then all of a sudden, he's he's with the Jays. And remember, he has that hot September to finish the season one year. Next year comes out and hits 50 home runs, basically became one of the best power hitters in the game for his rest, the rest of his tenure in Toronto. That's a really good one. I hadn't thought of that one, didn't have it on my list. Someone else didn't sign the text, said Cam Wake. I had him on my list for sure. A guy who was cut by the New York Giants at training camp, ends up with the BC Lions, dominates for two years in the CFL, and then goes down to become a Pro Bowl rush in the in the National Football League. I had Cam Wake on my list for sure. He's not quite the Kurt Warner story, but he's a pretty good one. Yeah, that's a good example, absolutely. And that's interesting because, you know, I, I could you throw a, a Jeff Garcia in there, right, who, who comes into the CFL and then ends up going down to the NFL and having a ton of success, making some Pro Bowls, being a really good NFL quarterback too. Greg is in my ear. As always, he is part of the goalie <laughs> fraternity. And I did have him on my list. I just had not revealed it yet, Greg. Tim Thomas, as much as fans of Vancouver are not going to want to hear it. Yeah, 
Tim Thomas is undoubtedly one of those stories. And we had somebody in Calgary text in 960-960 as well, and they said, Tim Thomas, just to annoy Vancouver fans. So there you go. We got, we got it on the air. We got it on the air. You got to tweak the Canucks fans. A lot of great texts coming in. We will get to more of them as the show continues. As mentioned, one of the other questions we asked in the opening segment of the show, which NHL head coach has the toughest job this season? And that can be open to interpretation what toughest means. Jamie and I outlined a couple of different definitions. We each had different ones. For me, there has to be the pressure of the market, the pressure of expectation as well. This one comes in. Travis Green has the most pressure because he was Linden's guy, not Jim's, as in Benning. Only reason he's back is because Jim doesn't want to piss off any more players, especially since he pissed them off during free agency last year. I don't think that's the only reason Travis Green is back. I do agree that Travis Green is on that short list. I think there's a lot of pressure on Travis Green, given the additions that the Vancouver Canucks have made. He was on my list that I was considering. I went with Sheldon Keefe. I'll tell you who else was on my list, and we're going to talk about him during the course of this interview. That, that might not be where we start. I think Jeremy Colleton is on that list. With what Chicago has done this offseason, getting some big names in there, assuming Jonathan Taze is back as another big name as well, I think there's some pressure in the Chicago market, and this is year four for Jeremy Colleton. We'll see if our next guest agrees with that or not, Jamie. Is Char- Charlie Rumaliotis is joining us now from NBC Sports in Chicago to talk some Blackhawks, to talk some Bears as well. Charlie, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? No problem. How's it going, gentlemen? It's going very well. I'll get to the Blackhawks in a second. Maybe not the right segue in, but the talk of the town, I'm sure, over the course of the weekend was about the Bears. Would this be a good time for Justin Fields to run for mayor in Chicago? <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's been amazing. Uh, you, you obviously watch all the rookie quarterbacks. It seemingly they they thrived in that um, in the the first preseason game. But Chicago specifically, you you watch that preseason game and it was so uninspiring with the first offense with Andy Dalton, and then here comes Justin Fields in the second half, and he just it's he just looked electric. So yeah, the, it's it's the talk in the town right now, and and I actually think today he took some reps with with the number one team. So I don't think those uh. I don't think that's going to quiet down anytime soon. When you look at the roster with the Chicago Bears, if they get capable quarterback play, what is the ceiling for this team in your estimation? Yeah, I honestly think they could be an NFC contender. And, you know, obviously for for so many years they've had the, the elite defenses, but they've never had the quarterback to go with it. And you can look at their, their most re- recent Super Bowl run where – you know, they, they had an, an, a high-end defense, but they didn't have a quarterback, right? And then they, they, they um, you know, kind of go into the Jay Cutler era, and, and they thought he was going to be their franchise quarterback, and they have the top-five defense for, for years, and they don't have the offense, right? So if, if Justin Fields and the Bears' offense can take that step in and become an above-average team, and they can kind of hover in the top-10 defense range, like, that's all, that's all they've been asking for, for for their offense. So, if he can propel them to, to be a top 10 offense, I really do believe that the Bears over the next coming years can, can be an NFC contender. Well, and Charlie, with all the excitement surrounding Justin Fields, I mean, obviously, you know, he's an incredible talent and there's a lot of reasons just because of what Justin Fields can do to be excited. But how much of it in Chicago is also about kind of what you're alluding to there, the history of specifically the quarterback position in that for that franchise and how incredibly difficult it's been able to find uh, a good quarterback there. Is that how much does that contribute to the hype around Fields as well? Yeah, no question. And, and I think that's maybe one of the things that, you know, was a detriment for, for Mitchell Trubisky when they drafted him in 2017. 
the, the Bears traded up to get him, and there was so much pressure on him going into you know, the, the year and, and just his tenure as a Chicago Bear because it was like, finally, we have this franchise quarterback. And so there's so much pressure to live up to that hype. And I think Justin Fields has kind of built it in a different way where he, he went to Ohio State. He, he, was, he was a guy that he's known for playing on the big stage, and he has that um, – he just has that the the ice in his veins, right? Like we even saw it in the preseason game where he just looks so calm and, compo- and, and composed. And so I think that's exactly what the Bears need for, from a quarterback. Like it, it's a tough market to play in when you're the quarterback because, you know, you arguably the best quarterback in Bears history is Jay Culler, and that's not saying a lot. <laughs> so, like the the fact that the, this there's so much um, there's so much hype around him. You need a guy that has thick skin, and I think Justin Fields has it. I think maybe the only person who's more excited than Bears fans generally about the the possibility of Justin Fields, it's got to be Allen Robinson, right? Because, you know, we've all seen the talent. We all know what he can do, but he has just never had stable quarterback play. I mean, how excited are you for the possibility of watching Allen Robinson with more talent throwing to him at the quarterback position? Absolutely. Uh, that, that's a great point, too. And you, you probably th- I mean, he's probably licking his chops right now because he's been trying to earn a long term extension. And every year he gets the franchise tag and he, he's like, all right, I guess we're going to roll it over for another one year contract. Now, you know, if Justin Fields is the quarterback, I mean, he can put up top five numbers in this offense. So I'm sure he's the one guy and his agent, too, are probably licking their chops uh, at the potential contract that he can earn because, yeah, you, I mean, you look at some of the, the wide receivers in, in Bears history, and like they had Brandon Marshall, they had some of these um, high-end receivers, but they, they never had the quarterback to go with it. So now they have the elite quarterback. Um, at least the Bears are hoping that he turns into that, and, and I think the entire offense is going to thrive. But, yeah, specifically the receivers and, and, uh, and Allen Robinson, Darnell Mooney, and even Cole Komet, who's, who's up and coming for the Bears. Charlie Romeliotis joining us from NBC Sports Chicago today. It's Rinso and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Part of the reason we wanted to bring you on, Charlie, is that you could talk some hockey as well. I know we're all leading into football season and we're all watching the NFL, but there's a lot going on with the Chicago Blackhawks, not the least of which is an investigation into serious allegations from over a decade ago with a video coach who has subsequently been convicted. Where is that at right now? And how much are media in the city holding the Blackhawks' feet to the fire? Yeah, it's obviously a dark cloud over the organization right now, and, and they're aware of it. And I, I think the one big thing going into this investigation was, are they going to make the, the, the findings of the independent review from General Block public, public, or are they going to make it private, right? And we've seen this in other sports where I think it was the Washington football team, they decided um, they were going to make their findings private and and the Dallas Mavericks made theirs public so we were you know I think that was the the one big question what were what was the what were the Blackhawks going to do with this investigation and and they had released um, a statement a couple weeks ago saying that they are going to make those findings public and uh, Danny Wirtz the the CEO basically said they're going to promptly implement changes to address the findings and and address any shortcomings in the organization so we're, we're going to be able to see this report and everyone's going to be able to see this report. And then it's going to be up to the organization to decide what they want to do after the findings become available. Do we have any idea what the timeline for that looks like? No, I, I think I know the, the, the review is still going on. And I know uh, as of last week that there were a few more players that got added to, to the list that were interviewed. And um, I think a, a former player told TSN uh, a week or two ago saying that they were confident that, the Jenner and Block investigation uh, is, 
legit, right? Like obviously there were some question marks as as, as to how this investigation was going to go. But um, as far as the timeline, I, I don't think we're going to have an, an answer on that. Um, I think they're going to take their time, but uh, it's unclear whether we're going to know the findings of that before um, the, this coming season starts. It's certainly the most important topic associated with the organization right now. Independent of that, there is a hockey season coming up and there's a roster that is somewhat been reconstructed some big names have been brought to town after trades after drafts <laughs> what do you make of what you see on the roster right now with the chicago blackhawks yeah they're, they're I, honestly the, the way i i've been calling it is i think they're going to be the x factor in the central division like that they're the one team where you know if they finish towards the bottom you're like oh okay like i i kind of see that but if they if they make some sort of run in the central division and they make the playoffs like no one's going to be like oh okay well i I, i'm not surprised you know what i mean like they could finish anywhere towards the top or towards the bottom depending on how the season goes and there are a lot of question marks in the central division um too as well like is minnesota going to have kaprizov like are the dallas stars going to bounce back how how good is winnipeg going to be with all their changes so there are a lot of question marks and i think the blackhawks are right in there like if they can put it all together if if Jonathan Taves is healthy and, and he can return to the form that we're used to seeing, even in the Edmonton bubble, I thought he was really good. And Patrick Kane is still Patrick Kane. And Alex Brinkett was on a 45-goal uh, pace across an 82-game season last year. And then you bring in Seth Jones and, and Marc-Andre Fleury and then sign Jake McCabe. And, and like you, you, have, you start having some depth pieces to this roster. So it's going to be a fascinating season to watch because I, I think more than anything, they're, they're going to be an interesting team to follow. The uh, the biggest investment they made in the offseason was for Seth Jones, right? They paid a very high price, both in terms of the assets they gave up in the trade and then also on the extension they signed him to right after. What does Seth Jones need to do on the ice to, you know, at least come close to justifying uh, all the Blackhawks have invested in him? Yeah, I think a, a big reason why, you know, obviously the, the talk in Chicago is, well, well, why didn't they just sign Dougie Hamilton? Why do they have to trade for Seth Jones, right? And, and I think, one of the reasons why they really identified Seth Jones as a guy that they want on this specific roster is because they haven't had a number one defenseman that can play in all situations since Duncan Keith. And I know Duncan Keith got traded over the offseason, but he hasn't been the consmite trophy winner that we're used to seeing since 2015, right? Like they've been trying to look for his successor for five years now, and they haven't been able to find it. Adam Boquist, the guy they traded for Seth Jones to Columbus, like he, his ceiling is like Eric Carlson-esque, right? But he's not the guy out there that's going to be protecting a one-goal lead with two minutes left um, in the third period, right? So, so they, they wanted a guy that could play in all situations, um, and, and they feel like Seth Jones is that. And, and the reason they traded for him, too, is he's only 26 years old. He, he's not 28, 29, where that, that contract – I know – Alex Petrangelo signed that seven-year deal with Vegas. He was 30 when he signed it in the offseason. And Seth Jones is 26. So, obviously, is Seth Jones going to be a $9.5 million player by the end of that contract? Probably not. But I, I think they, they see that there's value in the first half of that deal. And it, there's not going to be a trail-off in his play where that $9.5 million is going to look brutal by the time he's 34. How does the rest of the blue line shake out behind Seth Jones? You know, it's just looking at the depth chart of the Blackhawks and not seeing Duncan Keith there just feels so strange. You know, they bring in Seth Jones, they bring in Jake McCabe. You feel pretty good about those two guys. How does it look beyond uh, those top two, those two new additions? Yeah, I, I certainly think it's probably the most formidable defensive group they've had in, in years. 
Um, you obviously with Seth Jones and, and Jake McCabe, that's certainly going to be um, a shutdown, a shutdown type uh, defenseman. But, but Connor Murphy has really emerged. He was obviously the main piece coming in from that Nicholas Jalmerson deal um, from Arizona. And, and it was hard for him because obviously Jalmerson was a beloved figure in Chicago. And so you're like, well, how, how, the, how are the Blackhawks going to replace him? And so Murphy always got compared to Jalmerson then fair or not. And, and now I think Chicago is really starting to see the value in him because he, he's been, he's been their defensive stalwart over the last year or two um, on the back end where he's playing those heavy minutes against the, the number one lines of the opposing teams and he's playing the penalty kill. Right. So I think they're going to have that. And then, and then you have a Calvin DeHaan who, you know, I, I know there were reports going up to the free agency, whether the Blackhawks were going to move him or not, but even if he, even if he does, um, if he is part of the mix moving forward, I mean, that's a pretty formidable top four. And I think it, it's really going to come down to the bottom six or the, the bottom um, pairing. Like, who, what's that going to look like? Is it going to be Caleb Jones? Is it going to be a rookie like Wyatt Kalanick who really emerged um, as, a, as a top four guy last year towards the end of the stretch? And, and then you have Riley Stillman who signed a three-year extension. So they have all these bodies, um, and it's just going to be a matter of how, how it's going to shake out. But it certainly looks more formidable on the defensive end for the Blackhawks than it has in years past, for sure. A couple more minutes with Char- Charlie Romaliotis of NBC Sports in Chicago this morning on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. I think you heard me coming in talking about some expectation in Chicago and some pressure perhaps on Jeremy Colleton as well. This is a franchise that hasn't won a real playoff round since it last won a Stanley Cup in 2015. I know they got the qualifier, but... I think we all know what that was, and it, it was kind of independent of what we consider a playoff round win. They bring in Seth Jones. They bring in Marc-Andre Fleury. Kirby Dock's on the ascent. Taze is coming back. I see some expectation with this team. I also see Jeremy Colleton going into his fourth year. Do you think he has a tough job this year in Chicago? Yeah, I think it's a fair question. Uh, I do feel like the, the Blackhawks, if, if you look at the numbers, um, ever since Jeremy Colleton took over. Now, I know it's not fair because they were going through this rebuild, and so it's not necessarily like they gave him um, a high-end product on the ice, but they've been towards the bottom in, in scoring chances allowed and high-danger chances allowed, like bottom three, like for, for three or four straight years. And I think that's the area specifically that the Blackhawks are trying to see improvement in. And, you know, I know they, they go out and get Marc-Andre Fleury, and, and he can kind of be that last line of defense, but we saw it a year ago when the Blackhawks had Corey Crawford and Robin Leonard, like the Blackhawks were still giving up high quality scoring chances. And fortunately they had two number one goaltenders to kind of mask those flaws. So I think that's the one area where the Blackhawks are, are, you know, the city of Chicago, I'm sure is going to look closely at is are the Blackhawks improving defensively under Jeremy Colleton? Because we know they can score goals. They, they have the players, they have to bring it. They have Kane, they have doc and Taves, um, they have the goal-scoring power, but can they shore up defensively their own end? That's going to be the big key under Jeremy Colleton's system and whether or not they take that next step as a team. Charlie, excellent stuff. Thanks for hitting on a couple of local market teams for you and sharing that with our listeners today. Wish you a good one and hope to do this again soon. Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That is Char- Charlie Rumeliotis of NBC Sports in Chicago. Jamie, I didn't give you a chance to respond to what I proposed earlier, that there is pressure on Jeremy Colleton. I had him on my short list, and part of the reason is because I've seen this story before, and I saw it pretty close to home. I saw it in Vancouver. Travis Green had a team that wasn't expected to do much. Hey, can you just show us a modicum of improvement because we haven't given you a real roster? And then eventually Travis Green was given a real roster, and 
Okay, what do you do with this one? He made good, got them into the playoffs, won a round, pushed the Vegas Golden Knights to Game 7 in round number two. I feel like Jeremy Colleton has the makings of a real team now, and it's up to him to step up as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think just any time that a team goes out and makes major investments like this, there's always going to be some pressure on the head coach. I mean, you just think of the the internal dynamics that exist in an organization after that, right? After the general manager goes and pays a lot of future assets and pays big money to get these players. I mean, the GM, let's say things go south for the Blackhawks this year. The GM doesn't want to admit that all those acquisitions were bad, right? So the blame is kind of probably going to rest on the shoulders of the coaches. So, yeah, I absolutely think there's pressure on Jeremy Colton. Anytime your team goes out and makes major improvements, those expectations get raised, and that means extra pressure for the coach as well. And this is also a league that doesn't have a long longevity associated no. with coaching no. positions. We see a lot of turnstile in the NHL when it comes to turnover among these coaches. Year four, I'm not saying it's make or break, but that's where it gets ratcheted up. I talked about Dallas Aikens a little earlier. It's year three in Anaheim, and they need to see a little something likely down there. I would say the same with Jeremy Colleton. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I mean, just look, he, he replaced Joel Quenville, right? And I know Joel Quenville had been on the job for a while, but – you know, Joel Quenville is also one of the most respected coaches in the NHL, and he got fired, right? So anyone can get fired from a head coaching position in the NHL. It doesn't take all that much, and you're right. They get him a roster finally that, you know, as our guest Charlie said, yeah, there's still holes and there's still unpredictability, but there's also enough upside that you could forecast them finishing easily in the playoffs. And when you have that ability when you have enough talent on your roster to at least make that a reality there's always going to be pressure on the coach to reach those expectations and again it's not jeremy Colton's first or second year in chicago where he might have a little bit more leeway right he's been there long enough they've made the investments now it's time for him you know from the organization's perspective to show that he can put a winner out there on the ice I can't forecast whether or not he'll be there for the 22-23 season, but there is a change coming to the National Hockey League this season. Greg Ballack just DM'd me this story from Sportico. It was tweeted out by Eben Novi Williams. Our fans are not going to love this, but they're going to understand this, Jamie. There are going to be ads on NHL jerseys, not this coming season, but the season after. NBA owner, or pardon me, NHL owners have approved jersey patches for not this coming year, but the year after. It'll be a three inch by three and a half inch ad space. So it's slightly bigger than the NBA patches. We saw sponsorship on NHL helmets last season. You're going to start seeing them on NHL jerseys in two years' time. Yeah, and it's. I will, I'll be honest, it's a little bit disappointing. I'm not, you know, I know some fans get extremely negative in their reactions against it. I wouldn't put myself in that category. You know, I don't know. It's it's tough because I understand why it happens. I've kind of already accepted that it's going to happen. Does it make looking at the sweater, looking at the jersey, a little less appealing? Sure, it does. But also, I, I will say the NBA example, they've been very unobtrusive, I would say, in the NBA, right? They, they don't stick out that much. So if the NHL can follow that example, maybe this will you know, actually come in better than expected for a lot of fans. Yeah, and obviously the NHL has heard enough 
from potential sponsors to make it worth their while. What have we heard Gary Bettman say publicly for a long time? There's great tradition in our sport. There's great tradition associated with the hockey sweaters in our sport. We're not just going to change them overnight for a few dollars here and there. Obviously, there are enough interested parties that Bettman and co. have said, okay, we've lost a bunch of money here. Here's a place we can make it up. This is the one thing I would say to NHL fans who are going to be disappointed by this news as you hope to see a salary cap increase in coming yeah. years, and we've been hearing about a flat cap, and, boy, it's going to be tight for a lot of teams. This is one way where you can increase NHL revenue and perhaps see the cap slightly bump up. Well, and that's that's the important context for understanding this too, right? Is the NHL, look, sports leagues are always looking for ways to grow revenue and grow the pie, but especially in this context, yeah, the NHL is going to explore every reasonable opportunity they have to increase revenues because they're so starved for those extra dollars now coming out of COVID. We've been asking you about unknowns. We've been asking you about maybe underappreciated people in sports. We'll continue that theme next with another topic on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd right after this. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. I feel a little bit guilty even breaking in. Just let this song play. Let it breathe. The job calls for me to speak, though. That is a classic rock masterpiece. If you're after more classic rock, you'll find the perfect mix in the classic rock essentials playlist on Apple Music from the 60s and 70s all the way to the 90s. Listen to the classic rock essentials playlist on Apple Music, it's Scott Rintoul, it's Jamie Dodd, our listeners along as well, 650-650-960-960. Some great submissions coming in on the first couple of questions we posed of the day. Jamie, who's got the toughest gig among head coaches in the National Hockey League this coming season? And who are those late bloomers overlooked? How come they didn't get a shot earlier, either players or coaches? It's tougher to find coaches. I agree with you in that regard. There are a lot of players from a lot of different leagues, and our listeners have nominated a lot of them. One of the latest, James White. Now, James White isn't a star in the National Football League, but as this listener points out, he was a fourth-round pick, and then he holds Super Bowl records for most most receptions, most TDs, and most points scored. James White isn't the star as some of the other guys, but a very important player on those Patriots teams. Yeah, that's an interesting one for sure. And it's a little different, you know, saying a, a running back was a fourth round pick. That doesn't necessarily mean they're overlooked, right? Because yeah, a lot of running backs, that's where they go. Even if, even if people think highly of them and think they have a lot of potential. Uh, the one that came in that I thought was interesting was uh, Jamie Vardy of the English Premier League, mm-hmm. of course, who was of course a big part of that, that miracle Leicester city uh, English Premier League championship team and yeah that's a guy you know I'm not the biggest Prem fan but that's a guy who just was a very low league a low level player you know not even playing in the top flight and then all of a sudden he's the prolific striker on the team winning the the title in the Premier League so that's a really good one now a lot of our listeners have different definitions than you and I do like Gramrit texted in Cam Neely well Cam Neely was a first round draft pick and if you're a first round draft pick I feel like you don't qualify for the category we're talking about. We've had a couple people text in Marcus Nasland as well. Now, Marcus Nasland in his first stop, Cam Neely in his first stop, they didn't hit the heights they were supposed to, but eventually they got there. So I don't look at them as players who are overlooked. Like Marcus Nasland came in as one of the most successful Swedish junior players we've ever seen. He just didn't reach the heights he eventually would in Pittsburgh, and he needed a fresh start to hit those. I don't see him as overlooked or unheralded. 
Yeah, it's a good point about the first round pick aspect there and specifically, you know, the success they had before they came into the NHL. I was Marcus Daslin's interesting because, yeah, he did. I mean, you could say the same thing about Cam Neely, right? The heights he reached, both of them were, you know, among the best wingers uh, in the NHL in their primes. But it's a good point that they had the pedigree and they did have the expectations. Expectations maybe had lowered for the players by the time they broke out. But it wasn't as if, you know, people knew they had talent. It was just a question of could they put it together. Greg, the dairy farmer, sends in Marty St. Louis. Yeah, like, that's the classic definition yeah. for me. Like, Hall of Famer, overlooked completely, bounce, bounce, bounce. Oh, finally found a landing spot, and turns out he's really, really good. Yeah, exactly, and that's someone who did not have the pedigree and the expectations to ha- ultimately have that success. It was it was very much a surprise uh, when he was able to have that. We've had a couple other people throw in uh, Mika Kiprasov finally getting a chance as a mm-hmm. full-time starter in Calgary and running with it, putting up some incredible numbers along the way. Keep those texts coming in. We will filter them in throughout the course of the program, and we want to introduce another topic because our guest joining us at the bottom of this hour, I think we'll have great insight into a topic we're about to inter- introduce. If you were watching baseball last night, if you were watching highlights of any kind, you know it was another milestone night in what has been a milestone season for Joey Votto. Have a listen. Pale. 2,000 hits for Joey Votto. That's just a confident hitter right there. Joey Votto has been so good this year. Congratulations. Made the adjustment on the breaking pitch and his teammates, the fans, everybody appreciates it. That is now a milestone trifecta for Joey Votto with the Cincinnati Reds, the Canadian slugger in 2021. April 30th, Jamie, he got his 1,000th RBI. June 30th, he got his 300th home run. He got a little impatient. He didn't want to wait till August 30th. He took care of the <laughs> 2,000 hit last night. Incredible season in what has been an incredible career for the Canadian batsman. It really has. And this is uh, something of a bounce back year for him, too, at age 37. Not that he's been awful necessarily the last couple of seasons. And obviously last year was a short sample size. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. But I mean, he's back to being a legitimately excellent hitter in Major League Baseball, which is something you haven't been able to say for the last few seasons coming into this one. No, and yet his career has been exemplary. We know what he's done with the lumber in his hands. He is maybe not quite Larry Walker. Others would argue the best Canadian hitter of all time, but those are the discussion, right? Yeah, I think so, for sure. And we look at things a little bit differently. I saw that there was a text that came in earlier about Joey Votto saying, you know, I actually thought Joey Votto would have had 2,000 hits already. But what we know about on base percentage now compared to just hits, I think changes the equation a little bit. Joey Votto is top 25 all-time in Major League history, Jamie, in on-base percentage. Yeah, he is one of the most disciplined, selective, aware hitters up there, right? He, he does not swing at a lot of balls. He has a, an incredible eye. And as a result, he takes a ton of walks. And you're right. We don't, you know, we don't really traditionally pay attention to, oh, this guy has X number of walks in his career. But now we know, I mean, they're extremely valuable. And that, that's a, his eye is, is a huge part of what has made Joey Votto so valuable over his career. And just to put that into context with his on-base percentage, the amount of times he's getting on base, he's a shade behind Mike Trout on the all-time list. Yeah. Like, that's pretty decent company to be in. Baseball's been around for a little bit of time, and when you're top 25 all-time, that is ridiculous. 
Yeah, it really is. And I mean, again, to put it in perspective, you know, his career on base percentage is well over 400, right? And, you know, we always talk about uh, in in NBA, can you be a 50-40-90 player, right? 50% from the field, 40% from three, 90% from the line. And it's not nearly as rare, but if you're just kind of looking for um, a quick glance at how effective an offensive player is in, in Major League Baseball, how about 300, 400, 500, right? 300 batting average, 400 on base percentage, 500 slugging percentage. Joey Votto clears those marks for his career, right? Not just for his best seasons, but for his career. So Joey Votto is interesting because he plays in a smaller market that hasn't had very much success, and as good as he is, and there's this recognition that he's really good, I still feel, and I'd love to hear from our listeners whether they agree or disagree, I still feel like he's underappreciated. I feel like he's an underappreciated Canadian athlete, like he doesn't get the recognition in this country for how good he is. Do you agree or disagree with that notion? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think part of that is what you're saying. It's a smaller market. There's no kind of defining Joey Votto moment in the postseason or anything like that. And I do think part of it is as much as we know intellectually, okay, on-base percentage is really important, we still look for those traditional milestone numbers, right? 3,000 hits, 500 home runs. He's not going to get to those numbers because his game is a little bit different. And I think that does for just maybe people who are more of a casual baseball fan, it makes it a little more difficult to appreciate what he's done in his career. So would you put him at the top of your underappreciated Canadian athletes? Is he somewhere on your list? Who would be ahead of him? If we throw that out to our listeners as well, who are the most underappreciated Canadian athletes? I know there are some Olympians that are going to come into this for sure, Jamie, yeah. because they don't get paid attention to enough. And every four years we celebrate the likes of, say, a Damian Warner, but in between they don't get a lot of regard. But as far as maybe sports we pay attention to on an annual basis, who are the underappreciated Canadian athletes? So I don't know if he's, you know, above Joey Votto on this list, if he's number one or whatever, but a guy who I think definitely belongs on this list of underappreciated Canadian athletes is Atiba Hutchinson, right? And we're starting to see, you know, obviously Alfonso Davies has gotten a ton of hype doing what he's done for Bayern Munich in the Premier, in the Bundesliga, excuse me. And Atiba Hutchinson, of course, has played in Turkey for so long for Besiktas. And look, it's not the Bundesliga. It's not La Liga. It's not the Premier League. But it's still a major European league, and he plays for the best club, one of the best clubs in that league, right? He's helped them win a bunch of titles. They're in the Champions League on a consistent basis, and he's performed really well there. And you just look at the longevity to play at that level in Europe. Again, not at a glamour position where he's going to be scoring a ton of highlight reel goals. You know, he plays that more defensive midfield role for them. But to be a long-term key starter on a club at that level in Europe is incredibly impressive. And then you look at what he's done for Canada, always being there on the international stage as well. I know, you know, hardcore footy fans in this country recognize what Atiba Hutchinson has done, but I think at large, his career is underappreciated. It's a good nomination. And Atiba Hutchinson appears to be just wrong place, wrong time. Because our national yeah. program has had almost no success during the course of his career, he just falls by the wayside, and a lot of people over here don't pay attention to European soccer leagues, and I know that's increased in recent years, but they wouldn't pay attention to the team he's playing for. He's a really good player who's been on just some underwhelming Canadian soccer teams, and if those teams had had any measure of success like this current version yeah. was having right now, we'd talk about him a lot more. 
Yeah, well, he would be, you know, I think it was way back in 2012 when I was just doing some research for this. You know, he was named to the the Canadian all-time 11 for the Canadian men's national team, right? And then he continued to play for a long time after that and be a stalwart for the team. Like, he's meant a lot to the Canadian men's program. It just happened to come at a time where they were off the radar for a lot of sporting fans, right? Where they weren't making Gold Cup runs. They weren't making deep runs into World Cup qualification. And it's meant that... His track record, both internationally and at the club level, has really flown under the radar. Unsigned text comes in. Brooke Henderson and Bianca Andreescu for underappreciated Canadian athletes. I agree with the first one, not the second. I think Bianca has been appreciated because she had a meteoric rise, and our expectation for her is so great. Brooke Henderson doesn't get enough love for how accomplished she is. Yeah, I think that's fair, and it, it does kind of come and go with Brooke Henderson, right? You know, depending on what her most recent results are like, she'll get more of the spotlight, obviously, but on a consistent basis, recognizing and following what she's doing, you're right. It does not get enough attention. I'm going to throw this one at you. You tell me, is she underappreciated or not? Christine Sinclair. Well, that's a fascinating question. You know, if you'd asked me a couple of months ago, maybe I would have said yes. Right now, given what's unfolded, what unfolded in Tokyo and and bringing home the gold medal, I think she is getting her recognition. And you could always make the argument that, you know, her legacy is so great and her accomplishments are so great that even what we are giving her now is not enough. I'm open to listening to that. But I do think we are finally giving her the love she deserves for what she's accomplished. You know what part of it is to me? I feel like I've been on this train for a really long time. I've been a massive Christine Sinclair fan and and pumping those tires for a very long time. I don't know if you agree with this or not. Seeing some of the star players from the U.S. women's team over the course of their history applauds Christine Sinclair. I think that has, for whatever reason, caused more people to say, oh, I I guess she is even better than I thought or she deserves more recognition. She's not just a star in our country. Well, that's one of the surest signs to me always of greatness is the respect from your peers and, and the the acknowledgement from your peers, right? And to have established stars of the game show that kind of respect for Christine Sinclair, you're right. I think it clues a lot of people in that, you know, we're not just cheering. We're not just saying she's great because she's a Canadian, right? It's not that she's doing well for a Canadian. She's a legitimate superstar in this sport at the global level. I can't even tell you. I can't. I don't have time to get into it here. I can't tell you how excited I was, how happy I was for her, for that team yeah. when they won gold. I know I wasn't on the air at the time, but I was up at 5 a.m. watching that. That's two decades in the making. That goes a long way back. When we get a little more time this week or whenever, I will go into more of a diatribe on that. But, man, did I feel good. That, that filled my sails watching that team win gold. Let's get to what they're saying. Got to have some fun with this. Joey Votto, we told you about the milestone night. We introduced the topic of underappreciated Canadian athletes. Joey Votto does his press conference after the game, and he's been a real mercurial person, hasn't he, Jamie? Because sometimes when he's spoken to the media, it's come off the wrong way. Other times, like last night in the clip you're about to hear, he comes off as extremely interesting and humorous. Yeah, I think we've started to see more of the the open and the personality come out from Joey Votto late in his career. You know, I, you also look at things like interactions with fans before and during the game. That started to happen more and more often in a really positive way. So I think it's one of those cases where as the athlete gets older, as they get kind of more comfortable with their role, you start to see more of that personality.
And Joey Votto has talked about his mental health issues in the past and things that he has dealt with, and that gives us a little more understanding perhaps as to why he hasn't opened up earlier and he is more comfortable now. But last night he gets his 2,000th hit. The ball, of course, goes back to the dugout. Hey, you've got all your milestone stuff, right? Of course you do. Where Where's your first hit ball right now, Joey? Who has that? My first, my very first hit I gave to my dog to eat. And, you know, it doesn't exist. You know, Maris, he passed away last year, but he was a young dog. And uh, I just wanted him happy. And maybe it wasn't a good thing to give him. I, I don't know if you should be giving dogs baseballs, but I did at the time. And uh, the first, my very first major league hit doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's, it was chewed up and spit out by him. And uh, he loved it, by the way. But um, yeah, I, 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 if if I'm honest with you, if he was still alive, I'd probably give him the 2000 2000th ball to, to chew up. I don't know. Actually, I take that back. I don't know if that'd be good for his gut. I probably I probably wouldn't do that. What a great story. Yeah, I gave my first hit ball to my dog, and I'm impressed that the dog was named after Roger Maris. The dog's Roger name Maris. is Maris. Yeah. Man, I mean, what a great story he shared last night. I think it was awesome. That's a great story. That That's true love between a dog and their human right there. Hey, this milestone ball, go at it. I just want you to be happy, man. Have a chew. Have a chew. That, that's so fantastic. relatable. What do you mean you don't have your first hit? Well, I gave it to my dog. He <laughs> my seemed, dog ate it. <laughs> yeah, he seemed, he seemed pretty happy with it, and I'm, I'm not – I'm not that worried about it, actually. I've got another, well, now 2,000, because he got up to 2,001 last night. He wasn't done. He didn't stop on 2,000. He got another hit in that game as well. He's got another 2,000 hits. He's got plenty of baseballs. Joey Votto will be just fine. And during his life, Maris enjoyed the first hit baseball. Joey Votto, I don't know if Andre DeGrasse qualifies on the same list as underappreciated. I would suggest not. He is appreciated. Six medals now. He was fantastic again in Tokyo. Man, run it, Jamie, running that last leg of the relay, and it was the same script every time for Canada. Like, Andre yep. Brown would get off to a good start, and then they would lose ground with their middle two legs, and then DeGrasse would have to pull them back to the podium, which he did again in the final. That might get upgraded to a silver, by the way. Yep. That would be cool. Yeah, I mean, you never want to hear about people cheating or doing things untoward, but I'll, I'll take an extra silver for Canada. It was really actually the same script in his 200-meter victory, too, mm -hmm. right, where the final leg of it, just an incredible burst of speed and acceleration uh, from DeGrasse to claim the gold. Yeah, he's just got one of those higher-end top speeds than other other sprinters and if you give him time to get up to that he's going to catch you and as we saw in the 200 he's going to pass you Andre DeGrasse he's six for six as far as medal events in the last two Olympics he was on the fan 590 this morning in Toronto and he was asked about being part of the shift in Canadian sports when it comes to hey I'm not just here to be a part of it I'm here to win Oh yeah, it feels good. It feels good. I mean, uh, you know, I, of course, you know, I represent, you know, my family and my, and my and my friends and myself. But it's always good to just, you know, put on that bib and represent my country um, and show people, you know, the world that you know Canada belongs on the on the big stage. Um, so for me, it's uh, it's been a lot. It's been long overdue. I mean, we have so much talent here in Canada, but um, it's always just trying to just get past that mental barrier for a lot of athletes um, and the pressure. Um, so I mean. I think, but we have, we have so much talent. Whether it's on the track or, or you know, you saw you saw in swimming, we got a, we got medals there. Like just all type of Olympic sports, we have so much talent. But people just got to go out there and perform on the day. So um, it's good that uh, that I was able to you know accomplish that because um, I've been you know working hard for that moment and uh, you know just to be able to have that experience on my last Olympics that really helped help pay off in in, in becoming a champion uh, this time around. So for me, it's just really just like. 
I'm just proud to just really represent my country and go out there and, and put on a show and uh, and basically just show that, you know, that we belong. We belong on that world stage. And don't misinterpret when he said my last Olympics. He just means the one he's coming off. He yeah. said later in the interview, I'm going to try to get that 100-meter gold the next time out. So Andre DeGrasse has plans to come back. But, yes, it is a completely shifted mentality. It's not just DeGrasse. It's our Canadian women's soccer team and what they wore the entire tournament with gold shirts saying, we're here to win gold. We're not just here to medal. It's our swimming team. It's the bulk of this country. We have higher expectations than we ever have. And I thought that was really reflected by the coverage of the Olympic team, our Canadian Olympic team, and how the fans here in Canada were supporting them as well. And it was, you know, it wasn't blasé. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of hype, a lot of appreciation. But it wasn't this sense of, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we're doing this well, right? There seemed to be an understanding that, yeah, this is incredible. I'm hyped up. I'm fired up for these athletes. But I also kind of expected a really good performance. I thought that was an interesting dynamic. It was not presented as, wow, this is such a lucky, fluky run. It was, yeah, these athletes are really good, and this is what they do. Yeah, and there's a there's a fine balance to be struck there in my mind, yep. Jamie. If you finish fourth, it doesn't mean you're a failure. You're still fourth nope. in the world. But we believe that you are capable of meddling or winning the entire event. It's not that, oh, I'm not proud of you. I think it was Ellie Black who finished fourth in trampoline, or finished fourth in balance beam, I believe it was. And she finished right behind Simone Biles when Biles came back and started competing again. And it was her best score ever. It was her best finish, and it was the best finish the Canadian gymnast has had. And she said, I'm really proud of my work. And we didn't say, ah, you didn't win a medal. You're, no. You're, you're not a part of this anymore. But we have higher expectations, and we have a belief that we didn't have, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's the belief more than anything else, right? And you're right. There can be a fine line between, you know, taking it for granted and taking gold medal and silver medal performances for granted. But I think where we're at right now is actually a really good place where you have those high expectations and you have that belief, but you're still able to, you know, take pride in even people like Ellie Black, as you say, who finished just shy of the podium. One of the questions du jour, which NHL head coach has the toughest coaching gig? Nobody has mentioned Dave Tippett, understandably so, because he's got the best player on the planet, and Leon Dreisaitl's not too bad either. But the questions in Edmonton are always going to be about two things. Well, how good's your blue line, and how good's your goaltending? Tippett addressed one of those. Here's what he had to say about his defensive, defensive contingent in Edmonton. Uh, we changed some of our defense. Losing Larson was, uh, was something that... Uh... Um, we had to address. We think Cody CC in some of the video I've watched him from last year in Pittsburgh, he was a solid player, really solid player. So we're hoping he comes in and can play the same way. Tyson Berry had a nice rebound year last year. He's a really good offensive player, drove number one power play in the league, uh, along with Connor and Leon and Nude. So he's, uh, he's coming back and probably the Keith is a, you know, unbelievable veteran. I had a long talk with Joel Quinville this weekend about uh, about Duncan, and he thinks Duncan's going to be great. He says he's really motivated, and that's what I found when I talked to him too. The key guy for us this year is Evan Bouchard. He's going to he's going to he's ready to take another step. I think he'll be uh, I think he'll be a lot in the vein of Jesse Pouliot last year, where he'll come in, we'll we'll get him kind of settled in, but I think you'll see his game evolved throughout the year where he uh, he starts taking a, a, a bigger role with us. So um, I like our team. I think we have more depth. I think uh, our players are motivated to take that next step. 
And you say that every year, but ultimately this is of the three years that uh, or the third year I'm going to be here. This is the one where I think we have the most opportunity to do that. And there'll be more pressure. And we know when it comes, it comes in the playoffs. Do you see Edmonton as a surefire playoff team? Surefire is a stretch. If I was ranking, you know, most likely to make the playoffs after Vegas in the Pacific Division, I would probably have Edmonton second, just betting on Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl doing enough to carry them to the playoffs. So I'm not going to say surefire. I, I can still imagine ways it would go wrong with the questions on that blue line, the questions in the crease. But just looking at the rest of the Pacific Division, which I don't think is going to be a particularly tough division, I, I'd have them as second most likely to make the playoffs. Are they going to trade for Anton Hudobin or not? Like, that is the rumor that is out there. Yeah. And, wow, they got to shore up their goaltending. And Dallas has four goaltenders. How about him? Do you see that deal going down before the season? That's an interesting one. I, if I had to bet, I would bet yes, just because it does seem a little crazy to roll into the season with what they have in the crease. I know Mike Smith had a nice season last year, but I would not be betting on a repeat of that. So I don't know. I, I'll say yes, but it's hard to tell right now. Talking Edmonton hockey. I'm not sure we're going to talk Calgary hockey, but we're going to talk underappreciated athletes, meteoric rises, an all-encompassing interview coming your way next with Peter Labardius right here on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. We have thoughtful listeners. Had a couple of people ask, how's my hand? Slightly less puffy. The swelling has gone down today, Jamie, which is a good thing. The wasp sting is not as bad as it once was. Yesterday I was a little concerned after 36 <laughs> hours and it felt like it kept, it was still inflating. I was I was getting a little concerned there, but yes, a bunch of the swelling has subsided after my run-in with Mother Nature. That's good. That You're on the road to recovery then if the swelling is going down. That, yeah. that's, that's fantastic to hear. I feel better about that today. My The two hands, at some point, I feel like they're going to match again this week. <laughs> Peter Labardis is going to join us in just a couple minutes' time. I'm not sure who he's going to nominate in this category, but we had Donkey the Roofer, who has one of the more unique handles to text in, and he does so on a regular basis. We asked about underappreciated Canadian athletes. I didn't think of this person, but it's a, it's a decent argument that Donkey the Roofer makes. Nicholas Latifi. Nicholas Latifi is in F1. And as Donkey the Roofer goes on to say, he says, the dude races in the most fast and prestigious racing league in the world, gets no love from Canadians. He's not a star driver, but just the fact that he has one of 22 F1 seats is an accomplishment in itself. And it's that last part that makes it a good argument, Jamie. There are certain positions in sport. Quarterback in the NFL would be one of them yeah. as well. That if you hold that, and even if you're not a top five guy in your sport, people might not give enough, enough recognition to how hard it is to achieve just getting there. Yeah, I actually think it's a great argument. And I was considering nominating, you know, Lance Stroll is in F1 as well, uh, representing Canada, as well as Latifi. I think they're both good nominations precisely because it is such a prestigious, you know, event around the world. And it is so hard to get there, right? A lot of guys, there's a lot of people gunning for those spots. And as Donkey the Roofer says, there's only 22 of them available. So I think it's a good nomination. I still haven't watched Drive to Survive. It's on my list, but I haven't gotten there yet. How about you? Have you consumed? I've I've watched episodes here or there. I haven't sat down and binged the whole thing, but I've dipped my toe in the water a little bit. Fair of me to say that if we're having this conversation two years ago, people aren't nominating F1 drivers, but yep. there's been such a groundswell of interest because of that series that more people are into it? 
Well, and I think that maybe we might start to see those guys get some more recognition here, right? Because it is gaining so much popularity so rapidly. Time now to turn our attention to our next guest. Peter Lubardius is the color analyst for the Calgary Flames, friend of the show, longtime sportscaster in this country, and he joins us here on this Tuesday. Peter, thanks for doing this, my man. How are you? Oh, I am uh, outstanding. Good to hear your guys' voice. We got a lot of things to hit with you, and I know you'll like this topic because I know how proudly you wave the Canadian flag and support our athletes, many of them who are off the radar for many people across this country. It's an open question, but Joey Votto doing what he did last night prompted it once again. Who are the most underappreciated Canadian athletes in your mind? Oh, boy, Scott. That's a, that's a big, wide, open um subject yeah you know what i i would i would suggest that it's a hard question to answer because you know we're just coming out of the olympics right Mm -hmm. so um you know i i would say frankly at the top of the list in terms of athletes are so many of our top individual athletes in individual type sports or away from if you will the professional sports norm. So I would probably start there. Um, it's, just, it's a great question, and normally I would probably have an answer, but there's so many different ways to go with it, Scott. Um, you know, and under it's funny. Underappreciated always gets asked when people do things that we can appreciate. So, you know, Joey Votto, two more hits last night. He's had a monster season in Cincinnati you know 2000 hits only the great larry walker the only other canadian to have 2000 hits in a season so you know they're just if you love it all and most of the time i love it all and especially on the team sport side of things you know it's uh scott my favorite thing in the world is basically to try and identify you know, a lot of the young Canadian athletes early rather than late, especially in team sports, and then see where it goes from there. So, yeah, it's not an easy it's not an easy one to answer, that's for sure. Well, then perhaps you identified Christine Sinclair way back in the early part of this century yeah, in that U-19. Yeah, and that this is a gold medal that was two decades in the making. Is Christine Sinclair, after what happened in Tokyo, finally appreciated and getting the recognition she's deserved for far too long? You know what, Scott? I, I, think, I think there's really been a groundswell with Christine since that amazing performance the three goal outing against the United States in London in the semifinal in 2012. You know, I think for many Canadians who don't, you know, necessarily follow sports, you know, at a more amateur level. And, and on top of that, let's not kid ourselves, you know, following women's athletics is not exactly in the norm for a lot of people either. It's wonderful that that is starting to change, but you know, there are things, Scott, in life and in sports that I just think are meant to be. And, you know, I, I vividly remember being at Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton watching Canada play its last three games of that under-19 World Championship that, 
you know, put Christine. But I think, wouldn't you say, Scott, more importantly, women's soccer on the map. That, that was the event, you know, even though we lost to the United States, one nothing in the final. There was massive crowds. Um, our semifinal win over Brazil, you know, might be in my top 20 of all time that night. And the place was just buzzing. Um, but I am just, I am so happy for her and, and, you know, Desiree Scott and the athletes that give so much and are so committed and have done it for so long to see Christine have her moment. And Scott, don't you just find like, you know, a lot of times stars in sports aren't always universally loved by everybody. And, and maybe sometimes that's, that's the appearance that we get in the public and in the media. And I don't always think it's a hundred percent accurate behind the scenes, but in the case of Christine and I could be dead wrong, but it just seems like, like there is a love affair for that woman, you know, in her field, almost unlike any other athlete I can think of. And so there should be. And I'm with yeah. you on some things are just meant to be. It is written. And you look at the path that Canadian women's soccer team took to winning gold. She has to go through Marta, her long-term rival, who was at that same tournament back in Edmonton in the quarterfinals. Then they have to beat the United States, and the karma comes back from 2012. And then in the final, it's Christine Sinclair drawing the penalty and... The program she's built and the young women who inspired her, who pay her back by getting the gold medal in the end, it just felt like it was so meant to be for this country. It was, and and she's been an incredible ambassador. No one has scored more goals, you know, in international play, women or men, than Christine. I don't think there's any question to Scott. When you think about, you know, the team that just won the gold medal, you know, you have a kind of three classes of players right yet some of the older veterans you know whether it's stephanie the goalie at 33 34 desiree obviously and a couple of others but should we not 100 percent think that a lot of you know the vanessa Gilles and kadisha buchanan and you know a lot of the you know if you will 25 and underclass on that group don't tell me that Christine and, you know, even going all the way to that 0-1 tournament that we've mentioned a few times now, that probably, you know, helped so many young girls make that decision. And that, and, you know, as much as, and I do, I'm not sure anybody gets more joy, almost need to find a therapist to figure out why when our country does well. <laughs> but what really fires me up, and it's true, what really fires me up is, Scott, there's no way now to not think about what that's going to do for the next group of young girls and women in this country. Like that, you know, four and a half million people watched it. You know what time it started in your neck of the woods. I'm still in Mississauga where I spend the summer. That was an eight o'clock start here, five o'clock start your time. So... The legacy that that is going to leave, I don't know how you put a price tag on that. I just don't. Well, and Peter, we were uh, fortunate enough to speak to Julia Grosso on the program last week, and she was very upfront. Like I believe she would have been uh, 11 or 12 when she watched right. uh, Christine Sinclair in, in 2012, and she was very upfront saying, that's, that's what I wanted to do. That was a hugely inspirational moment for me. So I, I think you're absolutely right about that. 
And, you know, to, to tie it back into the conversation about underappreciated athletes, you know, I wonder if now that Christine Sinclair has gotten the love, if, if we're talking about underappreciated, we have to look at some of those other stalwart players on this Canadian women's team you were mentioning. And I, I look at someone like Kadisha Buchanan, who's, you know, a huge oh. part of an incredibly successful team in Europe. And I wonder if that's kind of the next step for women's soccer here in Canada is – you know, I don't want to say moving beyond Christine Sinclair because she's all she's always going to to be the icon of the sport in the country, but starting to give more recognition to some of the other key players as well. Well, it, it, Jamie, it's it's so true, and and I don't think we understand in our country, and, and I think we get why. But you know, I'll, I'll throw another sport out at you, and it's volleyball. But throw out, you know, we're talking about soccer. You don't think it's not a major advantage to have professional leagues to aspire to in your own country? You know, like, we're still in a position, it's obviously gotten way better on the men's side, um, and and I think, you know, the Canadian League in its own right that's off to a nice start despite the pandemic, you know, that stuff really matters, and it gives you know, the young, talented athletes a place to aspire to. So I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, we're going to learn more in the oncoming days about, you know, Jordan Heidema and Vanessa Gill and, you know, keep going down the line. It, it just, that's, that's the spillover. That's the carryover. That's the beauty. And by the way, if anybody thinks that, you know, like our women's softball team, right? And I have incredible yep. interest. I, I've been around it since I was a kid. Um, you know, that team had to raise money to be able to get the athletes to the games. So, you know, and they go over and they win a medal at the Olympics for the first time. And it's an incredible group of people. And, and listen, look what women did for our country in those games. And, you know, I love it. I love it for them, and I love the fact that, do you think Soccer Canada is going to have an easier time finding sponsorship now for for the women's game? Not a problem whatsoever now. Yeah, and you just hope that support lasts, you know, even if there are leaner times in the future, right, that we can sustain it. Yeah. and. The other thing uh, about having the the underappreciated discussion right now is we are coming off an Olympics, right? So Andre DeGrasse, Damian Warner, Penny Alexiak, they're all top of mind. They're all getting their due. Whereas, you know, if we're asking this question two years ago, those might be some names that we bring up. And I'm wondering if somebody like Brooke Henderson kind of fits into the under the radar the conversation right now. Because she's had moments in the spotlight in the past, but it does seem like... You know, if she's not competing in a major, if she's not winning a major, she falls a little bit off uh, out of the conversation. I wonder if she qualifies in the underappreciated category for you right now. Yeah, she does for absolute sure, and she's you know she's not maybe had her best year on tour you know in 2021, but you know at her young age, she's already won more professional tournaments than any Canadian in the history of the sport, which is pretty incredible when you put it in that particular sentence. Um, you know, Jamie, because I have such an incredible passion and love for athletics and sports, regardless of whether, you know, they're professional or not professional, um, the concerning thing for me always is outside of major events, 
it, it, it seems to me, and, you know, I'm an old guy now, but the younger demographic, you know, they study and they watch, but they watch in different ways. And, hey, on a, on a bigger scale, too, I, I'm, cons- I'm more concerned now about lower leagues in sports and their survival than I ever have been. Because they're just, you know, unless it's the number one game in town and the number one team, it, it seems like it's never been a harder sell outside of, yeah, we can all get fired up for, you know, two and a half weeks and, you know, wear the flag and wear our shirts and the whole thing. But, hey, that's beautiful. But does that ever really change? I don't know. And, and in some ways, I think, obviously, what does change it is success but it's 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 tough slugging out there folks i mean you guys do sports radio every single day how far how far past the vancouver canucks most days does the interest go i know it doesn't go very far in my home neck of the woods in calgary past the flames it's a fair point you raise. Peter Labardius with us for a few more minutes here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. I suppose the counter to that, Peter, and, and again, this is a little bit different show because it's done in two markets, so our topics are generally broader than right. a local programming show. So we cater to a wider audience simply because of that. I suppose the counter to it for lower leagues is that platforms are changing they're not conventional the way they used to be there doesn't have to be the same conventional platform validation i suppose is the right word that there has in the past so can some of these lower leagues can some of these lower teams utilize the social media platforms and other ways of connecting with the next generation that are now available to them that weren't always there i don't think you have a choice do you scott it's it's just it's so different, and, and what I think is now so different in a lot of cases is the consumer. You know, I ask a lot of my friends, um, you know, who have, let's just say, teenage children. You know, I have a 15-year-old son, um, you know, and for whatever reason, as long as it's NASCAR and racing, he'll sit there from morning till night, so getting my kid to watch for hours on end when he's and he was all fired up about the Olympics. Um, but in a lot of cases, you know, things now are consumed, aren't they, guys, more in snippets. So, you know, your ability to tap in, sell your stars, um, have people connect with your product, Scott, it's never been more different. And, and I think we're still very much in the infancy of where all of that is going to play itself out. Well, as far as as consuming it live, being at a sporting event, I think it's a really fair point, and that is why you are seeing a lot of these teams work gambling into their arenas and trying to find different ways to entertain because of that consumption in snippets. Okay, if you're only going to pay attention to the game for five minutes, what's the next thing we can offer you but you can only get here that is unique that you wouldn't get sitting at home? Right, right, and... And, and again, um, at times, for me, it drives me crazy because why isn't the event enough? But the fact of the matter is, it's not. And it is changing. And it, in many ways, Scott, when we were growing up, you know, you think whether it's about rink boards or, you know, nobody's playing music at hockey games, really, back, you know, when I was young. You just went and you went for the game. 
and and it was more than enough for us at the time, but it isn't now. And that's and that's the fact. Whether it's the amenities in the building, the types of food you sell, you know, the entertainment you put on, you know, sports now is far more entertainment in many ways when you think about how it's consumed. Like how many people are just okay if there weren't bells and whistles? And I don't know how many people really are. And that's real, fine. Yeah, it's a that's really good fine. point you raise. It's a really good point you raise because you've got to be different things in today's day and age. I'm not surprised that you brought up another topic for us to chew on here, Peter. We will let you get back to your vacation in Mississauga. <laughs> Thank you kindly. Thank okay, you. guys. Thanks for having me. Be well, okay? You as well. That is Peter Lubardius. I think he raises a really good point. That's not where I saw that conversation going, but that's where we ended up, Jamie. And it is an, it's an interesting point he makes about what the consumer wants or what tomorrow's consumer wants. It is different than what we've had in the past. We've talked about this a lot with in arena entertainment and the ways that you're keeping people captivated between whistles during television timeouts and, and broadcast stoppages. It is so different than it used to be. And I want to just, that's a really interesting facet of the conversation, but I also just want to back up a little bit to the talk you guys were having about, you know, different platforms and, and how hard it can be for leagues or sports that aren't the the number one A-level things to break through. And I do feel like for some leagues, there's been there's been a rush to really embrace streaming and embrace social at the expense of, you know, traditional broadcast or cable. And I understand that, but I also look at something like, you know, the Canadian men's soccer team. Scotty, how many texts do we get on a regular basis asking us why the qualification games for the Canadian men's team aren't going to be on traditional broadcast TV, right? How many questions do we get from listeners and say, oh, actually, you know, the rights are held by one soccer. It's this kind of niche uh, streaming platform. I don't want to disparage it at all. I think they do a good job with the games, but it creates this extra barrier uh, for people that might not be hardcore soccer fans, but still want to watch and cheer on the team. And I think that level of of fragmentation is something the industry is still figuring out, right? Because it's great to say, oh, everyone can cut the cord. You don't have to pay for cable packages. But all of a sudden, if you want to follow all of the sports you're interested in, you know, there's 15 different streaming services you have to pay for. And it ends up being just as much, if not more, than your cable bill. So that's something I, I know just even as a, a casual observer of European soccer, right? The Premier League is now uh, on streaming service as well. I found that very frustrating. So it, it's a really interesting observation by Peter that, yes, there's all these different platforms, which can be great for niche sports. But it also sometimes creates these barriers for the casual viewers that are hard to overcome. It's a really good point, and we did get a lot of texts about that with the Canadian men's soccer team, and how come I can't watch this? Why hasn't yeah. TSN, why isn't Sportsnet, why haven't they bucked up for this? CBC, hey, this is our national team. It should be on there. Now, two years ago, we weren't getting those texts. Nope. Because the nope. Canadian men's team, for example, was not on the rise, and there wasn't the wider audience that wanted to jump on board with Alfonso Davies and company. Now, all of a sudden, there's a little pent-up demand, so it looks like a really good bet by the streaming service. Does that change? I don't know. And it's, it's a really good question. It's an open-ended one that everybody might have a different answer to. What are you willing to pay for? Like, what are you yep. willing to pay for? Most of us, like me, for example, I've grown up with watching sports on our national networks, American networks as well. So what do I do? I go get cable. Like, that's what I do every single year. And I make sure that I get the sports packages that go with them. The next generation may look at it a completely different way. 
Well, even people my age, Scotty, I'm, I'm 35. I, I've always had cable because I'm such a big sports fan, right? And it's the easiest way to watch the most sports. But I get the sense talking to a lot of other people my age, not all of them, even big sports fans, just go the streaming route now and find ways to get the games on their computer, online, rather than paying for cable. I mean, even for people my generation, let alone the younger generation, I feel like I'm kind of out of step in paying for cable. Well, we're still working from home. I'll go ask my two daughters in the break, see what they want to buy, <laughs> see what they're willing to open the piggy bank for. It's Rintoul and Jamie Dodd. And coming up next, former captain of the Buffalo Sabres, now turned assistant coach of their American League affiliate. Michael Packett joins us right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.